Hi, I'm Steve Erickson, and I'm the pastor of the Mountain Valley Campus. One of the things I always tell people about what's so great about a multi-site is uh, you really get the benefit of being part of a larger church like Scottsdale Bible and all the ministries that it has, whether it's missions or counseling or anything like that, but you get to be part of a smaller, more intimate community. Everyone's like basically family. If, if you're here, everybody knows your name. And we just love the sense of community here. We've met so many great friends and developed great relationships with other people. Anyone new who comes in that door immediately becomes part of the flock. We have a really high energy and dynamic worship environment. Uh, we're really focusing on glorifying God and honoring Him in all that we do. And we also have a ton of places to connect relationally with other people. That's not only in classes and small groups and things like that, but also we have a lot of events that are designed uniquely just to connect you uh, into the body here. And it's a great place to serve here at Mountain Valley, whether it's children's ministry or students. I serve with the junior high and high school students and we just have so much fun. We do great events and all these kids are just so red hot for Jesus. Our kids come to the children's program here. They come home singing Bible songs and Bible verses. I can't imagine coming without volunteering. I love the people. That's why I'm still here after so many years. This church has been my home for a long time and so being able to play a small part is an important thing for me. I've, I've been a Christian since I was six years old but in the last few years it's just taken me to a place spiritually that I never dreamed. As you can see, Mountain Valley Campus really is a great place for you to worship, connect, and serve. So we invite you to come check us out and be a part of the community here at Mountain Valley. Thanks. You know, we, uh, we do a lot of uh, kind of thinking and praying around uh, the leadership at Scottsdale Bible Church, and one of the things that we have felt so good about is what the Lord has done here at Mountain Valley uh, as a church, uh, you know, on your own for so many years, and yet seeing God's hand of wonderful protection and provision for you, and then uh, merging Mountain Valley with Scottsdale Bible, and, and yet still retaining so much of what the Lord has knit into the DNA of this place, uh, not the least of which the name, and, uh, and seeing Mountain Valley even continue that way. And you know, I woke up this morning, and, and like uh, a lot of you, when I wake up, I kind of do a go through my mental Rolodex of what I have to do today, and you know, one of the things I do is I lay there in bed and think, okay, I'm going to enjoy that, I'm not going to enjoy that, you know, and I, and I go through my day, and, and as I thought about being here at Mountain Valley, I thought, I, I, I can't wait. It's going to be a joy to be with all of you, and it certainly has. And, you know, every week when I uh, take us into our time in the Word, I always say, you know, that as Cactus Campus and Mountain Valley and Chapel and Venue join us for our time in the Word, and it feels so good today to say that as a Cactus and all the venues and campuses at Shea join us for our time in the Word, uh, and, and that, that, yeah, you can clap at that. It just feels good. We love you. And, and we really do uh, love the fact that our congregation, in all seriousness, has you know, five different congregations or meeting uh, venues and places, but we'd like to think, and I think we attain this, that we are one congregation called Scottsdale Bible Church, and one of the ways we demonstrate that is through our time in the Word. In fact, we invest a lot of technology and even uh, a lot of God's resources to uh, trying to make sure that we do everything live together so that we can have that experience together. And we now have the capability uh, for me to be here and to go back to Shea and then also to Cactus. So welcome, guys. It's good to be with all of us together. So let's do this. I'm going to bow and pray, and then we're going to dive into what God ha has for us today in the Word. Would you all do that with me right now? 
Father, I do thank you for the unity uh, of your church, both worldwide, for anybody who claims the name of Jesus Christ and follows him, and Lord, as we've, as we've experienced, even us here at Scottsdale Bible Church, that as we've grown and developed multiple platforms for us to meet in and to do our worship in, God, we uh, still retain this idea of being one body in Jesus Christ. And Lord, one of the things that keeps us together is our time in your word. And so God, I pray that as we open your book now and continue in a series that we've been in, in the gospel of John, that you might be pleased with this, that by the power of your spirit, that you might speak to each one of our minds and hearts, and that we might understand what you have said to us and be encouraged or challenged by it. And I pray this in Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. Well, this won't surprise you. I have an agenda for our time over the next 35 or so minutes. And uh, I don't always do this, but I'm going to let you know right up front what my agenda is, uh, because I don't like it when people are too subtle or even manipulative in their communication. And my agenda today is one of two different things, depending on where you happen to be in your life right now. And so here it is. My agenda is I want to either greatly encourage you about something that you already believe or I want to strongly convince you about something that I think you need to believe. And I don't always come across this strong, but I feel the need to today. Some of you walked in here today believing what we're going to talk about today, and my only goal for you today is to underline it in your life and say, way to go, keep on keeping on. But then there's others of you who are equally as Christian as the rest of us who have walked in today, and because of maybe your past or your own particular reading of the Bible, you, you don't necessarily buy what we're going to talk about today. And, and I don't always do this because i got a lot of latitude in my own theology, but on this one, I'm going to do my best to convince you otherwise and to help you see what I think God is saying to us in the Bible. And so let's just dive right into the deep end on what I'm talking about right now. Let's go right to our main point. And here it is. Here's what I want to encourage some of you about and challenge some of you about. Uh, And that is that followers of Jesus Christ are eternally secure. That's our operative phrase today. Eternally secure in Him. As many of you know, we're getting to the tail end of our spring series here at Scottsdale Bible, and we've been taking a look at the Gospel of John, and specifically, we've been looking at 10 different traits that occur between chapters 7 through 11, 10 traits that Jesus himself gives us that help us become more fully devoted followers of him, 10 things that we need to not just believe in Jesus Christ, but to then become followers of him, faithful all of our lives. And we looked at things like this. Well, you got to recognize and honor that he's God's sole revelation to us. And, And then you need to draw close to him. And then it's helpful to have a thirst or desire for him. And then you need to understand certain things about grace. And you need to be able to hear him. These are all things that we've looked at that Jesus himself teaches us uh, in these chapters. And and as we continue now to make our way toward the end of chapter 10, Jesus is going to give us the ninth trait, there's only ten of them, ninth trait that we need in order to become faithful followers of him. And it's a trait that we're going to call security. Simply put, the ability for you and me as followers of Jesus, now get this, to rest secure in the salvation that he has provided for us, and I mean rest secure no matter what. 
No matter what comes your way in life, no matter what happens to you, you have no doubt that he has grabbed your life and will never let go. I want to show you what I mean. This section begins here in John 10 by kind of doing a little bit of a switching of scenes, and it describes in verses 22 and 23 the new scene that is now before us. So let's just quickly understand this. It says, at that time, the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple at the portico of Solomon. What's the feast of dedication? Well, go back. What's the feast of dedication? Uh, the feast of dedication, many of you know today, is Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah occurs in December for the Jews, and, and Hanukkah has for 2,000 years been a celebration of the Jews that they're celebrating something that happened way back in about 169 BC when Jewish or Judas Maccabees. Uh, overran the Syrians who had overrun the temple and protected the temple and rededicated the temple from the Syrians. And so this eight-day celebration called Hanukkah is celebrating God's provision and protection in history of the temple there in Jerusalem. And it says that Jesus was there during the Feast of the Dedication, and he was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. And that simply means, just picture a very large porch on the east side of the temple that was an outside space, big columns and a roof. And that was where a lot of the scribes did a lot of the teaching of the Jewish people. And so Jesus is walking there, and he's attracted this kind of large crowd of Jewish seekers who were interacting with him. And it says next that they ask him, and I quote, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And I find that an extremely weird question, because if you've read chapters 1 through 9, he's already told them plainly. I mean, in John 8, 59, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to kill him, because they understood, we did a whole message on this, that Jesus was clearly claiming to be God come in the flesh and to bring them back to God, and to bring them to God the Father. And Jesus essentially says this. Look at verse 25. It says, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. And so is Jesus essentially saying, look, I've already told you plainly, and even my works and my miracles that I do, I, I, I do to show you that I'm not just some ordinary holy man, but I am God come to you. But then Jesus decides to take this discussion much further, and watch this, he's going to take it into uncharted spiritual territory as far as the progression of the Gospel of John goes, and look at what he says next in verses 26 to 30. These are the verses that we're going to park on for the rest of our time here together today because they are so important and they give us this ninth trait. Jesus goes on to say, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep here my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give them, or I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Go back one slide now. I got to tell you, there's a lot going on 
in this passage here. I mean, we could almost do an entire series of messages just on the richness of what Jesus is laying out here. But for the sake of time today, what I want you to notice is that what Jesus is laying out here, and I put a lot of it in yellow, is the heart of it is, is that he's talking about salvation because he says that he gives eternal life to his sheep. And we know from our other readings of scriptures that eternal life is the heart of what it means to be saved in Christ. That eternal life means, as Jesus would say, that you have life abundantly here now that will lead you all the way into eternity. In which Jesus says here, you will never perish and you'll be with him for all of eternity. Some people don't buy that today, obviously. We have naturalists and atheists and agnostics and, and people like that. But for, for thousands of years, many forms of religion, and particularly Christianity, has believed strongly in the afterlife. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about salvation from our sins, salvation into eternity. And, and, and notice he gives us a very simple analogy here that you and I can latch on to. These are obviously allegories. He says, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And based upon this process, we'll get more to in a minute, where his sheep hear his voice and he knows them and they follow him, he says that he gives them eternal life. So salvation happens when his sheep hear his voice and they follow or believe in him. And then Jesus clarifies it by saying that they'll never perish and no one then, once that has happened, will be able to snatch them out of his hand. And this is where we start to bump into this idea of security. That once you're one of his sheep, once you're a follower of him, there's an aspect to that in which nothing can undo it. No one will snatch you out of Jesus' fold. That's what he's laying out here. And the question that I need you and I to wrestle with right now, we're going to answer this question, but I need you to really wrestle with this with me, is as you consider your salvation, as you consider what Jesus teaches us here, the question I have for you is where is the grounds of your salvation? Where is the, the, the grounds of your security found? Is it found more in you and something you do or is it found more in God and something he does for you? Do you understand at least the difference between the question? Because I think the answer to this question, and I've been doing this for 35 years, is going to determine where you fall on this issue of security. Is your salvation, is this analogy here with the sheep that Jesus gives us that we're going to explore here in a minute, more about the sheep, more about you, more about something that you have done or is it more about something that God has done that he is going to hold secure for you? The answer to that question is significant when it comes to where you're going to land on this idea of security. And I'm going to submit to you right now that the grounds of your salvation, the grounds of this idea of eternal life, lie almost completely in God, not in us. And you're saying, well, why would you believe that? Let me show you five lines of evidence here that uh, Jesus gives us. So I'll go to the first line of evidence here. Yeah, that Jesus gives us here that I think clue us in that, that he's focusing much more here on God being the grounds of our assurance, God being the author of our salvation, God being the one who's in control of eternal life, not you or I. He begins by saying, my sheep. 
That's a phrase of personal ownership. Do you all understand that? If you go out to your parking lot today and I look at your car and I'll say, whose car is that? And it's your car. What are you going to say? My car. And if you're like me, you're going to say, get away from it. I don't want you to scratch it. I don't want you to breathe on it. I don't want you to touch it. It's my car. And I would, you would understand fully what I mean by that. And I would understand fully what you mean by that. It's personal ownership. Jesus says, my sheep, and then he says, hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Seems to me like the emphasis here is on Jesus, not us. Amen? I mean, say, my sheep, my voice, I know them. The only thing that we could even have as a part of that would be the decision to follow him. And then the Bible is even going to pull a fast one on that one and say, yeah, it felt like your decision, but actually, he, he, he was calling you. <laughs> he, he was yelling your name, and, and he quickened your heart to hear him. And yeah, you did begin to follow him, and this is the whole nature of salvation. You've got to believe, you've got to trust, but it's his sheep hearing his voice, whom he knows, and they follow. So right from the get-go, the emphasis seems to be on God. And then notice the second line of evidence that based upon this salvation that Jesus gives us here in the form of sheep, he says, I give. Isn't that an interesting way of saying it? I give them something. And what is it that he gives us? Eternal life. You guys are asleep or you're awake with me here. He gives us eternal life, right? And notice the way Jesus phrases that. He didn't say, you earned it. He could have said that. He could say, hey, you know, you're such a great follower that I thought I'd just reward you with eternal life because you earned it. Never, ever does the Bible say anything remotely like that. Jesus says, I decided to gift you with eternity with me. Again, the idea is it still resides in him. I mean, if you get a gift at Christmas, my guess is I hope that it's not because you earned it. The whole nature of a gift is because somebody wanted to bless you. Again, some of you don't function like that. Some of you, well, you're not good. I'm not going to give you a gift. God doesn't do that. God says, no, I'm gifting you eternal life. Again, he's trying to say something to us because it's more about me than it is you. And then things start to really heat up because then there's this third line of evidence that after Jesus says, here's how salvation works. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow. And then I give them eternal life. He then says, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Whoa. Now, we're now at the heart of this issue here. And I've got to ask you a question. <laughs> when Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of your hand, what do you think he means by that? Again, if you said, everybody said last night, well, no one, no one. It means no one. Yeah, I agree with you there. But, but let's go further with that. What's involved with no one? What does no one encompass? I mean, does it really mean no one? And if so, how would you define no one. See, this is where we have to really wrestle with this. The Bible will actually go on to answer this question. The Bible will go on to give the three enemies of every Christian, <laughs> the three things that you and I battle every day. We're going to call them the three great snatchers. There's only three things that could possibly threaten your salvation, that could possibly take you out of God's fold. And do you know what they are? Things of this world, things in the dark forces of the spiritual realm, or your own flesh your own sinful desires. Those are the only three things that could possibly take you away from God. Something in this world, something in the spiritual realm, or something inside of you that is just insidiously self-sufficient and even wrong that might snatch you away from God. So we're going to call these the three great snatchers, the world, the evil one, and the flesh. Notice what the Bible says about the world. It says this. Look at Ephesians 2 verses 1 and 2. It says, and you were dead 
in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this, say it with me, world. It's telling us there that there's an aspect to this world, not all of it, mind you, but an aspect to this world that is not really for your faith. There's an aspect to this world in which, you know, that it's going to always come against you in your faith. Have you experienced that yet? So things that you watch on TV, things that you know you shouldn't do that are out there, uh, even people who are well-meaning that, that don't get your faith in Jesus. I mean, these are all things that can distract you and pull you away from God. And at the very least, I think when Jesus says that no one can snatch them from my hand, he means that. Give me a head nod that you all understand that, right? At the very least, he's got to mean the things of this world. But I think it means more than that. The, the, the second uh, great snatcher out there that could snatch us away from God is the evil one. Uh, this is rich. Look at 1 Peter, uh, go, give me a click here. Look at 1 Peter 5, 8. It says, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone, meaning you, to devour. Again, some people don't believe this stuff. They don't believe that there's actually a dark, evil realm out there that we can't see but wages war on our soul. It's always seemed to me that if you believe in a good spiritual realm, <laughs> then it's certainly possible that there's a dark spiritual realm. And the Bible affirms that. That's why I've told you guys before that, that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, man, you've got a target on your back every day. And that target is that there's evil forces that when you wake up and say, I want to walk with God, that there's a part of, 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 of the spiritual realm that says they don't want you to walk with God. And that's why some of you experience temptation that overcomes you and things that happen to you. And not all the time, but sometimes it's the result of this spiritual battle. Again, I got to believe that at the very least, when Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them from my hand He's referring to this. He's referring to evil and the devil. That, that, that at the end of the day, no one, not even them, can snatch them from your hand. We have biblical evidence for this because it'll say in the Bible, greater is he that is in you, meaning Jesus and the Holy Spirit, than he who is in this world. So right there, there's evidence of that. So no one in this world can snatch you out of Jesus' hands. No one in the dark spiritual forces can snatch you out of Jesus' hand. Now let's get really down to the issue. I said that the third enemy of the Christian life, the third thing that could possibly take you away from God is what? You. <laughs> I, I love the Bible's teaching here. It's, look at this in Galatians 5.17. It says, for the flesh, the uh, NIV translation says the sinful nature just refers to a part of you, and we all got it, that isn't for God. A part of you that does your own thing, a part of you that still needs to submit, a part of you that is still in, in somewhat rebellion against him. And we don't like to admit that that's there, but it is. And here's how we know this. It says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives in you, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now, this is fascinating, gang. This is written to Christians. Galatians was a church filled with Christians. And it's telling us here that for the Christian, there's a constant battle going on inside of you, and every one of you can relate to this, where you're tempted by something, say food, okay? And, and, and you're trying to lose weight, and you know that you need to lose weight, and you're asking God's help to lose weight. And so you're in a restaurant, and you're looking at two items, and one of them's a healthy salad, and one of them's a burger with fries. And you go, I shouldn't order that burger and fries. I should not eat that. That's not healthy. It would be borderline sinful. I don't want to do that. And what do you end up doing? You, you order the fries, <laughs> 
You ever done that? Some of you haven't. Well, let's pick on another area of your life. But I mean, you, there's areas of your life where, where you would do something, give me a head nod, that you don't want to do. And the Bible says that that's an example right there of the flesh warring against you. There, there's a part of you that, 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 that's undisciplined, unbridled, that's not submitting to God. And here's my question to you. When Jesus says that no one can snatch them out of my hand, could he also have been thinking of the flesh? Could he be saying here, because I think he is, that even you cannot snatch you out of his hand? See, I, I, I think that's exactly what he's saying here. I think Jesus, when you got to wrestle with this. What does he mean by no one? Does it include the world? Yes. Does it include the devil? Yes. But does it even include your fleshly own stupid desires inside of you? Absolutely it does. You're included in that no one. And if you don't believe me, I love this quote from Spurgeon. Charles Spurgeon was one of the prince of preachers back in Europe, back in England in the 18. Hundreds. In 1889, he preached a sermon on exactly this passage here. And just listen to what he says to be sure that we might be right on this. He, he says, many will tug at the Christian, but none shall snatch them away. The devil will give many a horrible tug and pull to get them away, but he shall never take them out of the great shepherd's hand. Their old friends, the world, and even the memory of their old sins, the flesh, will come and tug at, tug at them very hard and very cunningly. But the Savior says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. So, so out of what we're coming to, go back to our list here, we see that we are his sheep who hear his voice, and he knows us, and then we follow him. And he gives us eternal life. And then he says, based on that, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Then he does something really sneaky here. Jesus then goes on to say, and this is the fourth line of evidence, my Father has given them to me. Whoa. That means the, Jesus is starting to bring the Trinity into this now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he's saying, my Father is involved in this too. Ephesians 1 would say it this way, before the foundations of the world... God decided to call you into his kingdom. My Father has given them to me. And as Jesus brings the Trinity into this, eventually in Romans 8, 16, they'll bring the Holy Spirit into this when it says that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. So now the whole Trinity is involved in this thing and saying it's more about them than even about you. And then the last line of evidence, and this one's really amazing, is that it seems to repeat number three, but there's two different twists here. Then Jesus says, no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. And the obvious two twists here are, one, it's the Father's hand now, not just Jesus' hand, so the Trinity's involved in this. And then this says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says here, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. And you know what's rich about that? It's the Greek word dunamai, where we get our English word dynamite from. The word literally means to have power over. Jesus is saying, no one will have power to snatch them out of my Father's hands. And so add all this up, folks. I, I, I mean, you got Jesus giving us here the, the idea of what salvation is about, 
our faith and trust in Him. We hear His voice and respond. But then very quickly, if you're reading this closely, we realize that it's a lot more about God and Him holding us secure than us. We're His sheep. He gave us eternal life. It's His gift. No snatching allowed. And you can't even snatch you out of His hand. And the entire dunamai, the entire power of the Trinity is now behind this. And again, if we're reading this rightly, I think we are, clearly we have to admit our salvation resides in God more than it does us. And this is where our assurance and our security lies. He chooses us. And even the choice you made for him, the Bible says, well, really, God gave you the ability to choose him. (laughs) And so it all goes back to his choosing and calling. And here's the point. God doesn't change his mind. If God has called you into his kingdom, he will never revoke his calling. His choice will not be undone. And though I know this brings up a lot of other issues and things we have to wrestle with, let's just confine ourselves to Jesus' clear teaching here. The reason that this is so important, gang, <laughs> is because many believers today, and I'm talking about good-hearted, faithful believers in Jesus, will at times, and maybe even more often than that, doubt whether they are saved or not. Have you ever been there? If you haven't, hang in there long enough, you will. <laughs> I I mean, I've been a Christian 35 years, and there have been numerous times where I've wondered, is this really real? Is is, is he really, is he that good? Is he going to hold on to me even in the midst of all the crud I'm experiencing right now? And and before you know it, we become insecure about the nature of our salvation. And I'm telling you, only a proper theology on eternal security can adequately deal with your times of darkness and doubt. Simply put, until you realize that God has you in Jesus, again, it's predicated on you being a believer in him. If you become a believer and follower of him, God says, I now have you in Jesus, and I will never let you go. And he wants us to rest secure in that knowledge and even in him. This idea of security really is a trait that feeds our following of him. Uh, let's give an illustration here. Uh, who is this? Anybody know? Dustin Hoffman. You guys watch way too many movies. This is Dustin Hoffman, who is now 78 years old. Aren't we all getting older? 78 years old. And Dustin Hoffman is arguably one of the better actors uh, in Hollywood's history. He came, came into the scene in the 60s with his movie The Graduate, and then uh, Kramer versus Kramer was a very popular movie in the 80s, and then in the 90s it was Rain Man. I watch a lot of movies too. And, and Dustin Hoffman is a, is a very, very good actor. In fact, Dustin Hoffman has received uh, two double Oscars over the years. He's a double Oscar winner, and he's considered a screen legend. And and arguably, at the age of 78, none of that's ever going to be taken away from him. I mean, the water's under the bridge. He's just good. But it's interesting, and just in the last year, he did an interview with a very popular magazine, and in this interview, he was sharing about how even at the age of 78, he still worries about the future, but not just the future, he worries about his future career. (laughs) Listen to what he says. I find this kind of interesting. He says, I would bet it's not just me. We all worry about the next thing. There are these extraordinary tennis players who get out there and they admit that they're just shaking to be able to get the next serve in. That's all of us. 
They say you're only as good as your last picture. Well, we only think we're as good as our last good piece of work. And then based on this quote, they asked him, well, what then is your greatest fear? Look at what he says. He says, my greatest fear is that I'm never going to be hired again. And that's a constant fear. Is this it? Fascinating. Somebody is successful as Dustin Hoffman, who could just retire with millions, is, is just lives every day with this constant fear that maybe he'll be a failure before he dies. Is, is this really it? You know, about a few years ago, there was a, uh, a show that came out, a popular TV show featuring a successful businessman who's now running for the presidency. The show was called The Apprentice. How many of you guys saw The Apprentice? Some of you did. If you didn't see it, the two most fearful words in The Apprentice were these two words, your fired. It was a show about business success, and each year somebody, or each week somebody got fired, uh, and then it would basically down to one person who would then be the apprentice. And, and Trump was on many of these shows, and, and, and he would look at somebody, and in only the ominous way he could say it, he'd say, you're fired. And then they'd do this walk of shame out, out, out off the show. You, you see, I think many Christians tend to fear and feel this. We worry that God might never hire us again. Let's call it the Dustin Hoffman fear. I mean, honestly, if truth be known, some of you were here today and had other venues and campuses, I'm telling you, and you walked in today thinking, okay, I know. I know he saved me and I know he hired me, but I'm such a mess up. There's so many inconsistencies in my life that, you know what, if God had to do it again, I don't think he'd hire me again. I just don't think that he's all that pleased. And, 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 and you know, I just, I, I, just, I just, I live with this constant fear that, that there's never going to be anything more here. God is just so disappointed in me. And there might be reason for him to be disappointed, but that, that's how you think. And then you quickly translate that to what we might call the Donald Trump scenario or the apprentice, and that's that on your better days you say, well, I guess he, he, he does keep me hired, but boy, one of these days I'm just going to hear those fateful words, you're fired. And some of you are even raised in Christian traditions that taught you that God just very well might do that, that you can lose your salvation, that if you cross whatever line they put there for you, that, that, that he might just look at you and say, you're fired, and, and you've lost it. Here's what I believe Jesus is teaching you and me today. That your salvation, which is predicated upon your belief and trust in him, is grounded and resides in the full power of the Trinity. That to use our analogy, he has hired you in Christ. You are now his full-time worker in the vineyard, vineyard and as his worker, he will never look at you and say, you're fired. You might not be a good worker. <laughs> he might have things that he needs to work on in your life. We'll talk about that in just a second here. But that's different than him looking at you and saying, you're fired. You see, I, I like better the image of the family. This is one the Bible uses very tenderly. The Bible tells us, uh, Bartolini loves this image here, that, that God has adopted us into his family. That, that those of us who are not born Jewish and living in the first century, <laughs> that, that by faith God has adopted us now into his family and he now calls us his child. And, and get this, as his son or daughter now, he says, I will never, ever, ever kick you out of my family. I will never disown you as my child. Isn't that a beautiful image? It's one that we can relate to. 
I mean, some of our, as Neil said a few months ago when he was preaching, some of our, our own kids have just taken stupid pills all their lives, right? I mean, some of you, you, you do deal with that with your kids. You just, you're like, what is this kid doing? Or maybe you're one of those kids. Maybe you're one who's never gotten your act together and you've just taken stupid pills all your life and, and all of that. Let me ask you a question in all seriousness about this. If your kid takes a bunch of stupid pills, or, or if you're that kid that takes stupid pills, would a good parent ever disown you even for that? course not. In fact, we look at parents that do that and say, I get it. I get you're frustrated with your kid, but you never disown your kid. Amen? You guys really pathetic here. You never disown your kid. Amen? You don't. And parents that do, we don't get. Now again, transfer that to God. God says, you're my kid. If you're in Jesus Christ, you're mine. And no one can snatch them out of your hand. Not the world, not the evil one, not even your own flesh. And I'm never letting go of you. You're mine. And as a result of that, you will always be my kid. And again, guys, I, I know what the answer is. This. I mean, I've, I've been, again, I've been doing this for a very long time. I, I know that there are responses. I know there's complexities in this. I know people got lots of scenarios, but what about this? What about that? I get it. But let's just confine ourselves today for time to what Jesus is saying. And despite the complexities, despite things that you might think about this, just ask yourself at the end of the day, this is what it all hangs and falls on, who is more in charge of your salvation, him or you? And if it's him, he has said, no one's snatching you from me. (laughs) And we call it eternal security. And it's an amazing trait. You know, we're fast running out of time, and I don't have time to tell you the whole story, but one of the reasons I feel so passionate about this, and this should just be instructive for all of us, is because I've had my own personal experience with this. And again, I've always argued that experience, in part, will dictate how we read the Bible, and it should. I mean, if the, you can't prove the Bible true through some experience, then I guess that's hard to believe it. And the reality is, is that I got saved in March 11th, 1981. We've been sharing that with you all year, that I'm 35 years a Christian now. But I got to tell you, after I got saved, I was a messed up junior in high school who was just doing a lot of real decadent things. After I got saved, I really clearly believed and trusted in Jesus. I mean, that was very real the night that I prayed to receive Christ. But boy, did I start to experience the pressure of the world and the pressure of my own flesh and the attacks of the evil one. Now watch this. After I accepted Christ. And in some weird, pathetic way, I actually did more sinning, I think, after I accepted Christ than before. I I mean, I kind of upped the heat on the pressure I felt from in my high school to drink and to party, and and, and I I, I just went out and I did a lot of stupid things. And it's funny because as I did those stupid things, I felt very guilty for them. Now, it's funny. Before I met Christ... I never felt guilty for anything. <laughs> but after I accepted Christ, now I felt guilty for all this stuff. And, and so for 20 months after I accepted Christ, I lived a fairly decadent life, and, and, and yet I constantly felt guilty and bad and all of this. And, and, and again, my whole high school knew it. I come from a small town and a small high school, and my good friends would just say, here comes the hypocrite. Here comes the guy who accepted Christ, and now he's partying with us still on the weekends. And some of you teens can relate to this. You know, he's just one big hypocrite. And I felt it too. You got no argument from me. I was. And I remember going to the guy who led me to Christ. He was on staff with Youth for Christ, which is like Young Life here in the Valley. And I went to Joe and said, 
you know, they're right. I, I, there's no way I can be saved, Joe. There's no way I'm a Christian. I mean, I can't even get victory over this stuff here. Now, let me ask you a question. What would you have said to me if I came to you with that? Some Christians would seriously say, well, Jamie, you know what? You got a point. I mean, you know, you're kind of doing a lot of sin that Christians shouldn't really do, and you say you accepted Christ, but there's really not a lot of fruit, not a lot of evidence other than the guilt you feel. And so, you know what? I, I think, you know, until you're ready to get serious about this, let's call you a pagan. I mean, that's what some Christians would probably say to me. It was interesting. My friend Joe had a better theology than that. I still remember coming to him as a messed up high school kid and saying, I, I did it again, I did it again. And he would always say, Jamie, look, I was there. I was there when you received Christ. I prayed with you, and as far as I could tell, it was very real. And here's what I know. He's never letting go. And the reason you feel so guilty is because he's never letting go. <laughs> and someday, you're going to get sick, as Psalm 40 says, of sitting in the muck and mire, and you're going to ask him to place your feet on dry ground. And I'm going to be there when that happens too. But until then, let me just continue to encourage you. Keep going back to Jesus. Keep going back. I had one friend of mine say in high school, he said, you know, here, here's what I will say positively about your life, Jamie. He said, as a Christian, um, you do fall down a lot. He said, but, but you do keep getting up and running back to Jesus, you know. And I thought, yeah, I was. And, and I was not a very good testimony as a result of that. And then on November 23rd, 1982, so that was March 11th, 1981, November 23rd, 1982, I, and again, I'm not going to tell you the whole story right now, but just suffice to say, I finally got sick and sick and sick and tired of my sin. And at two in the morning, after reading a little bit of the Bible, I re-surrendered, I call it, I call it my re-surrender, my life to Christ. And uh, I said, God, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of living this duplicitous life. You've you got to give me strength here. And I, I just, I surrendered at a new level. And honestly, since then, I've never been drunk. Uh, since then, I have not done some of the sins I was doing since then. I still I'm, you know, struggle with things, but not that. And my life just took off from there. So here's my point in telling you this. Some people, hearing my story, would say, well, you really weren't saved until November 23rd, 1982, right? They'd say, until you laid it all down, until you had enough evidential fruit, and until you really showed it and demonstrated it, don't you love being around Christians like that? You know, they make you feel so good, don't they? See, I, I, again, I'm not trying to excuse sin here today, guys. I'm trying to protect the character of God. See, I believe, and again, only heaven reveals. I might be wrong. I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I, I really believe that on March 11th, 1981, God granted me eternal life because it's predicated on me hearing his voice, him knowing me, and me saying, yes, I'm in Jesus, and I want to follow you. But I struggled with following we're human. And I struggle big time. I crossed a line that many Christians don't want you to cross. And I'm not excusing that at all. I'm just saying that even in crossing that line, boy, I know he never let go of me. He said, no one can snatch you out of my hands. And guys, I'm here to tell you today, I've been there. I've been in that darkness. I've been in that doubt. And his grace is so powerful that he never Let's go. And aren't you glad he doesn't? We're going to go to the communion table right now. And as we do, I'm going to let our campus pastors and back at Shea Neal uh, lead us in communion. And Steve's going to come up and lead us in communion. Now, what a great day for communion. Some of you need to do business with God. Some of you need to believe and trust in him for the very first time. Steve's going to talk to you about that and some other campus pastors. Some of you 
need to simply change a little bit of your theology and say, oh God, I put way too much of it on me. Forgive me for doing that one, God. It's more about you. (laughs) And my salvation resides in you. And I'm going to thank you for that today. Use the communion time to do that, would you please? Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for who you are in our lives. Thank you for your grace and for your goodness. And that, Lord, in some mysterious, almost impossible way to explain, your grace is scandalous. It knows no bounds. And yet, God, in our good moments, we're so grateful for that. God, I pray for all of us here today and at our campuses and venues that, God, we might cling to your grace now and realize how solid our salvation is, not because of us. We're still a mess because of Jesus and what he has done for us and the whole weight of the Trinity working in our lives. Encourage us with that today, Lord. Convince us of that, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.